Nobody likes being the engineer on call, especially if you're the one being woken up at 3 a.m. due to an outage. It feels chaotic. It feels like there should be a better way. This is exactly what Matt Forney was thinking when he co-founded Gremlin, the world's first chaos engineering platform. In this episode of Dev Interrupted, we get into exactly what chaos engineering is, how it came to be, and how you can implement it at your organization. Also be sure to join our upcoming Dev Interrupted watch party on May 20th. I'm bringing back some of our favorite guests from Netflix, GitHub, and Honeycomb to discuss how they're creating continuous improvement at their organizations. Sign up using the link below. This episode is sponsored by Linear B. Give your dev team the power to improve with team-based metrics, high-risk code alerts, and the world's first project board based on real-time Git activity. Sign up free at LinearB.io. Matt, thanks for joining us on DI today. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to having a good chat. Yeah, yeah. Really cool to have you on here. And so we just kind of dive right in. Can you start by giving us a definition of what is chaos engineering and maybe a quick background on how it all got started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're you're not the first to ask. I've definitely had to explain this uh, several times, which is part of part of the operational uh, or the uh, occupational hazard of starting a, a category, right? Chaos engineering, I think it's originated way back in the day. Uh, I think it really goes back to like disaster recovery and trying to get ahead of that, being proactive. You know, my, I think there's some, uh, some folks that think that this all started at, uh, at Netflix with Chaos Monkey, which I think is where it first became really popularized. But we were doing this back in the Amazon, you know, my Amazon days back in 2010. And I think even before that, there was a guy named uh, Jesse Robbins who used to run through data centers and just like pull cables out of the wall. He got the nickname, the master of disaster. Um, and so the practice that's been evolving over time, but really what chaos engineering is, it's, it's, it's the, the practice, the art, if you want to call it that, of introducing controlled chaos. So not just going in and randomly shutting stuff down or breaking stuff without really a purpose, but really thinking uh, very analytically and very scientifically around, great, what are a bunch of hypotheses that I have about how my, my system works and how can I actually go exercise those hypotheses to see if you know they hold true, if they're validation, if I can validate or reject those hypotheses. So you use you use that chaos the same way you would, uh, well, very apt these days. You know, you you inject a little bit of the failure to see if you can build up a tolerance, you know, similar to a vaccine or something along those lines. Yeah, is it only something that is for kind of production, like the health of your production or the stability of production, or are you also doing it in the QA practices? Where does it I mean, live? Theoretically, you should be running chaos just about everywhere. Like, really, mm -hmm. what what we're doing under the covers with chaos engineering is building that. Uh, building that mentality, that practice, that muscle, and that that thought process about about reliability. Yeah, it, you know, chaos engineering is really one of the tools in the toolkit of the SRE of the reliability engineer, or just in building reliability. And so, what you want to do is sort of build not only that practice, like from a like an engineering, put it into your CI/CD pipeline, like that kind of thing, but also the culture around cool, let's start to think about how can this fail up front when you're developing code all the way through production. Um, I, 
I've heard the term shift right a lot more these days, which that one drives me a little bit crazy, but like the idea that it, I don't think it's really shift left or shift, right. It should live yeah. at every step of the pipeline, right. It should yeah, go yeah. all the way from dev to staging production. If you've got QA in the middle, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm usually hearing like shifting left, getting, you know, empowered developers, uh, find things earlier, which will save time and money. Um, what do you think are the major benefits of having a chaos engineering practice in place for an engineering organization? I mean, for me back in the, the Amazon days, the, the, the best benefit I can think of is my pager didn't go off at 3am anymore. Yeah. It went off at, you know, 3pm when we're running these controlled experiments. And when we're actually like validating our assumptions with like eyes on glass, and I'm not waking up and rolling out of bed, trying to like wipe the sleep from my eyes and figure out what the hell's going on with my, uh, I can, am I allowed to swear? Sorry. I, I, forgot, I forgot to ask earlier on, but um, yeah, it's, yeah, that's okay. Okay, cool. It's, uh, it's one of those things that it has a lot of benefits, but I think one of the most is just being able to be proactive about figuring out when and how things are going to fail. Well, depending on when you're going to get woken up, it's like if your buddy's going to unplug that wire at 2 a.m., like you mentioned before, maybe. Yeah, but I assume, you know, OK, we get this, you know, maybe in stages that are pre-production, that's certainly going to help you not get woken up by pager duty, right? Yeah. And I mean, that was a, a bit of a glib response because that was my very selfish response was not getting woken up. But honestly, what it gives you is it gives you a tool to be able to go out and proactively validate all of those assumptions, make sure that you're catching things before your customers do. Because the last, very last thing you want to do is have customer pain points surface up issues that you could have caught beforehand. And I think it goes back to what you had mentioned earlier, Dan, like where should it live in the pipeline? Well, the more checks and balances you have in terms of going out, the better. And if you can test it in dev, great. If it gets past that and you get through staging, great. If it gets to production and it fails there, okay, bring it back down to dev and just start start the whole process over again. Right, right. When I hear chaos engineering, it sounds, just because of the name, like do a bunch of random stuff and see what happens. Is that is it really that chaotic? Or is it more like an organized set of events? Could you walk us through like tactically what does it mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a fantastic question, Dan. Like, I think the name chaos engineering is actually a little bit of a misnomer. Like it's actually as far from chaotic as you can get. It's very controlled, very well thought through. You have to, I mean, the way you think about it is there's a hypothesis that I am trying to figure out here, either yes or no, an assumption that I am trying to validate or disprove. Um, and so the, the process, at least the way that we, you know, we educate our customers is like, no, don't just throw random stuff. You can get there. Like eventually you want to get to the point where you are automating all of this. We call it continuous chaos because that's nice and buzzy and fits at the end of CI. Yeah. All these sayings sound cool. Chaos engineering, continue. That's continuous chaos. That sounds cool. <laughs> I know, right? And originally, back when it was just me and my co-founder writing the code, I just I called myself the chief chaos engineer, which is just you know one of the best. But uh, yeah, the idea is is that you ultimately want to be able to handle any of this random chaos being thrown at you because that's what the world is. It's entropy. It's degradation. It's consistently um, you know throwing throwing different things, different chaos at you, but. 
in order to get comfortable with that, in order to build up that muscle, you need to start off very tactical. You need to be very targeted in what you're doing. We really advocate for what we do. We, we call the, the set of hosts or the set of containers that you're impacting. We call it the blast radius. And so you want to start the blast radius very, very small. And as you gain confidence, you grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually, you know, once you're, you're comfortable with that, you're able to run that experiment in a programmatic way, say, you know, at least through the Gremlin product, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, during business hours, run this experiment some random time in that window and make sure that our service auto heals or remediates or whatever it is, right? Yeah, no, that that's really cool. It sounds, you know, the stuff you're doing at Gremlin actually sounds awesome to me. Um, If I'm thinking about an implementation or a rollout of this, I'm going to make this up because I don't know if this is the case, but is it something like, I don't know, like our DevOps people kind of find Gremlin and then it would cause, you know, or simulate us one of our services not being able to get API calls or something. And then what happens after that? Or, or what is it more like? Like, what is the, what does the product actually do? Yeah, no. So, I mean, it, it injects failure and yeah. gives you the ability to see the actual impact on your system while that failure is being injected, right? So we have mm-hmm. we have these pull and push data mechanisms where you can basically say like, I'm going to run this attack and then I'm going to pull in data for my monitoring and I'm going to see if it actually impacts like my top level KPIs or something yeah. along those lines. But what does it actually do at its core? Well, it's, it's an agent that we install on your host and then we're able to do a bunch of different, I think we have 12 different like failure modes. They, they bucket into three real categories. There's resource, state, and network. So your example, yeah, totally. You go and instrument the service and then you black hole all traffic coming from the identity service or the cart service, or it depends on you know what your business is. You have slightly different use cases, but you go out there and you, you ask the question, you be bold, ask the question, well, what happens if I don't have access to this? Do my fallback mechanisms work? And how am I actually going to test that in the real world? Which is, you know, part of the hardest part is, is figuring out a way to replicate those, those degraded scenarios. Right, right. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but does it, do you usually start off with kind of like a one-off or a single blast radius a better an even better way to ask that question like how long would it take to be more continuous with the continuous chaos usually yeah it's really i mean it's dependent on uh the customer and on their risk tolerance you know some of our customers are some of the uh the big banks and so they have a little bit higher or a little bit lower uh, risk tolerance you know they don't want to just go out and grow the blast radius the biggest they can possibly do but yeah i mean it, it's really a, a question of of comfort and visibility, I think, more time than anything. So if you're able to communicate to your organization, hey, we're doing some testing here, we're going to start very small, but we're going to slowly build it up. And then once you've maybe say it's on like a per service basis, you've got your service instrumented against, uh, you know, being able to lose one of the failure modes, we lose a node, we replace the node, right? Great. You feel really confident about that, then start automating it, right? Start with one, make sure it gets replaced, kill off five, make sure all five get replaced, kill off 10, make sure they get replaced. And then boom, you automate that at the level that you feel comfortable with. So who is using chaos engineering right now? Is it for all companies or what's what's the customer base look like? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think we've seen uh, a change in our customer base recently. You know, initially in the earlier years, it was largely enterprise companies, companies that have compliance, uh, you know, thrust upon them from the U.S. government or various, you know, governments. Um, but over the over time, we've seen this become a like you mentioned earlier. It's become more of a common practice that has moved, you know, not only shift left but has also shifted down, down market as well. And so we're seeing companies that are, are getting, you know, that aren't necessarily, you know, blue chip, uh, you know, Fortune 500 starting to get really interested in the practice and getting really interested in reliability. This whole, I don't know if you remember this, but for me, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like downtime was a thing that was still acceptable and like maintenance windows and like, that's just not a thing anymore. Yeah. So a lot of different, a lot of companies are adopting this as a way to, make sure they can say up and available, reliable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think most customers, especially like consumers today, it's just like it always works or it's a crappy product. <laughs> you know, the, the tolerance level has gone down for outages. It's gone. So it's weird. It's gone. Like our, our appetite for technology has gone up exponentially and our, yeah. <laughs> our like ability to stomach downtime has gone down, like drastically de- decreased. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I said in one of my talks a while back was just like the visibility in terms of like whether or not a company is up and available is also just exploded. Like if, if something is not available, I mean, you go straight to Twitter, you know, somebody is going to go blow that company up and it's it's just not acceptable. Yeah. You, know you got I mean? a down detector, you got all the socials, everyone. Um, do you think that this product is something that all dev teams should be using yeah, I mean, absolutely. Or I wouldn't have founded the company. But uh, yeah, I, I think this is definitely a practice that it needs. It, it it needs to be. It needs to have a caretaker. It needs to have somebody who is you know willing to push some of these things. But I think oftentimes you know the 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 onus is on the engineers, right? Like at least at Amazon, the way they uh, they kind of did it with me is they kind of threw me a, a pager and were like, "Good luck. Anything you yeah. want to own." And I think that really incentivizes people to adopt this sort of a practice. And I know I've talked more about the practice, like the Gremlin product is, is, you know, not just chaos engineering, it's chaos engineering in the name of reliability. And I think Mm -hmm. that this product, not only, it not only enables folks, but it teaches them a lot of these best practices. It teaches them how to build more reliable software. So I joke that we're like engineers, engineers, you know, we're, we're the ones that have like all been on call and, you know, taking some of those, uh, taking some of those lumps at 3am. And so we're just trying to make everyone's lives better by teaching them all what we've learned in those, those uh, trying times. Yeah. I mean, you come from that background. It sounds like you've been the one that has been up at 3am and, and probably a lot of your users have also experienced something like that. And if I kind of just think now of the idea that, you know, you and your team are getting paid to kind of break things or create this, you know, more so controlled chaos, but still chaos. Do you have any stories from the field that would kind of be interesting or blow people's minds in the realm of destruction? In the realm of destruction. I mean, I've got, uh, I've got quite a few stories from back in the day, but I think more than anything, it's, I think some of the things that we've uncovered that have been really interesting to me uh, are when our customers tell us like, we don't have time to do this because 
I'm doing a migration or because once I make this move, I'm going to like figure out uh, once, I, once I've made this migration, once I've like adopted this new technology, that's when I'll invest in reliability. And it's like, hmm, you don't think this is a good time to do it? Because I remember back in my days at Amazon, I actually, I originally worked on the availability team, but was very quickly given my own team called the Fatals team. And the whole job was write a weekly email to, to Jeff Bezos and the exec team about all the stuff that broke in the retail website. And I joined right after we'd gone through a microservice migration, which has introduced a whole new slew of failure modes and was keeping us up at all hours. And so I think one of the things I've realized is like, there's never, there's always a good reason to put this off, but really things are always gonna break. Like that's the nature of software, that's the nature of life. You gotta adopt these things up front. Uh, you gotta you gotta be willing to put a little bit of uh, investment in as you're making some of these other changes. Otherwise, you're just you're never going to be able to get ahead of the problem. So I don't know if those are the uh, the exciting stories you were expecting, but it was definitely definitely resonates with me. Uh, in no, terms, that's, that's cool. I'm sure that email was really fun to to write about the uh, outages at Amazon. <laughs> oh yeah, he would write. Uh, Jeff would respond back with a smiley face, a sad face, or a question mark. That was it. So it was. Uh, you'd send the email and just sort of like sit there and wait to see what happens. So it was uh, interesting. Oh man, that yeah, that that's awesome. Um, kind of switching topics a little bit. When I'm thinking about ownership of a tool like this, of a, a chaos engineering tool, or someone that's using uh, Gremlin, I've been more accustomed to possibly an SRE team maybe start using it, which not all engineering organizations have. Or have you seen it be more like the QA or DevOps? Like, where does it fall for ownership of, of a tool like this? Yeah, it's a really great question, Dan. I think oftentimes there is a centralized team that is really tasked with reliability, regardless of whether or not they actually own the services, but they own the reliability number, whether that be, you know, availability, error rate, whatever, whatever they're tracking uh, in terms of that. And so oftentimes what we see is we see one of those SRE teams adopted or a DevOps team. Um, and that's just because they have, you know, that mandate. But I think it's it's very hard, and this is, I mean, it's very similar to my experience with the the Fatals program, tracking all of those five XXs and and whatnot. Is it's really hard to drive that sort of change sometimes if there's not buy-in from like the application teams. You got to kind of carry more of a stick than a carrot, and uh, it can make you the bad guy pretty quickly. But uh, I think I think we've seen some adoption there. What we're trying to do, or what we're building right now, is is the ability to really empower all of those application teams to be able to take the ownership into their own hands, take the onus into their own hands, be able to, to, to you know use this on their own services and think about failure instead of just, you know, at least the way I've experienced it sometimes in the past is just handing it to a DevOps team and be like, here, go ahead and run this. And it's like, mm, yeah, bam. yeah. I, I think what we've seen in the industry in general is it's always best if that application team or kind of that core development team also owns production and services and reliability. Um, on the flip side, you know, what I have seen at larger enterprises or organizations, that's not always the case. And for example, that's kind of, you know, when SRE might have been formed. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think there would ever be like a chaos engineering team that only focuses on the chaos? 
So we actually, we have a channel in our, our internal Slack that tracks all of the new like chaos engineering positions as they come up. Okay. We've actually seen like a team so far, but we've definitely seen a huge uptrend in like uh, must have experience with chaos engineering and like the SRE space. But like mm-hmm. I uh, like I mentioned a little bit, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. I really think chaos engineering and don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of chaos engineering. It's what got Gremlin to where it is, but like, it is only one tool in the SRE yeah. tool belt. It is a very powerful tool. It is a very great validation mechanism, but it is not the be all end all to increasing reliability. There's load testing. There's making sure you're setting up your timeouts properly. There's a whole slew of things that you've got to be able to do to build reliable systems beyond just breaking them. You can right, break right. them to go validate that all those things work, right? Yeah, certainly an important piece to the puzzle. Um, but not the only thing that that type of uh, team or, you know, the only mindset that you need to have for site reliability. We like to talk about metrics a fair amount on this this pod. Like I'm kind of a metrics guy and, you know, that's kind of inherent in our, our DNA here. Um, what kind of metrics come along with chaos engineering? Yeah, absolutely. And you're you're speaking right up my alley. My background is uh, applied math, computer science, and my applied math was all statistics. So perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, in terms of what metrics, like I think oftentimes, so there are, are, are kind of like base level metrics for chaos engineering, like how many attacks did I run? How many experiments were validated, were rejected, that sort of thing. But I think they really tie into more of the, the overarching reliability metrics. Um, I think different companies have know, different top line business KPIs, but oftentimes with reliability, you hear a lot of, a lot of like MTTR mean time to resolution, MTTD mean time to detection. Uh, We at Amazon, at least in my day, tracked MTBF mean time between failures. Uh, There's also just availability kind of writ large. Latency is a big thing. Uh, Air rate or fatals as we called it in Amazon. There's a whole bunch of these different things that are more trailing indicators of whether or not your chaos engineering, your reliability efforts are being effective. But I think there's a lot more, honestly, a lot of the folks that we talk to oftentimes don't have any of those things instrumented. And so getting them to that, building out like that good incident management program, it's all another arm of being reliable. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned some of the more common metrics that we hear, you know, like some of those Dora metrics, MTTR. I really like the one, I forget like the acronym, but, you know, mean time between failures. That sounds pretty cool to me. It was was what we called that. And it was just great. We failed, you know, June 3rd and then again, June 4th and then again, June 6th. Like, if we're not really, if we're not really getting ahead of things here, if we're failing every 24 hours, are we? We should be seeing that number go up and to the right, right? So, yeah. So if I, you know, if I started out, you know, using some of Gremlin's functionality, um, how would I track if it's working? Is it just like all those metrics start getting better? Or is there a single one that you would say, okay, we're starting to see some success with uh, the implementation? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one of the ones, you know, we're, we're trying to answer for our customers, especially those ones that don't track any of these things. Yeah. And so it's, you know, there's always the classic, uh, the classic conundrum. I think the security space is very similar to us, but like, how do you track the value of something that didn't happen? Like, how do you track the ROI of, you know, a non-incident? Um, and so we actually have some customers that explicitly call out, like, this was an incident we avoided by chaos engineering. And they actually track non-incidents 
as a way to measure that. But I think overall, usually folks look for availability as the top line metric, and they usually track it on like a per service basis. And then at the system level as well, right? So if you got a microservice and you got services FUBAR and BAS, and they're all interrelated, you'll track those independently, but then you'll also track, you know, the overall uh, availability of the system. Yeah, it it reminds me sometimes I think you'll see in like a factory or some kind of hands-on job, like number of days without, I guess, an injury or like an incident. Because I would think that if nothing is happening, that would be a really good success criteria. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, what my one of my new favorite phrases from my director of engineering is just like boring is good. Like boring yeah. <laughs> is absolutely good in R&D. You want to just be cruising along, developing. You don't want to be putting out fires and and that sort of thing. So I don't I don't know if you've read the Phoenix Project, but it, you you bring it up like factories reminds me of that. And there's a lot of similar sure. there. And yeah, so I, as soon as you said that, it just clicked. Yeah, I, I definitely checked out Phoenix Project back in the day now. It was a while ago. Um, I, know. I know. And, you know, kind of last question here to, to close it out. Have you ever been at or worked on a team where nothing happened bad in production? Have you ever gotten to be at that state before? Where nothing bad ever happened in production? Yeah, is it a reality? Can it even happen? No, I don't think that I've ever been at a place where nothing bad ever happened. But I, I've only, before Gremlin, I've only really worked at uh, Amazon and Salesforce and with, with companies of that size and scale and product breath, like there's, there's just no way you're getting out, getting out of the woods with nothing bad ever happening. Like it's just yeah. not, not a thing. I mean, what I will say is, you know, our, our on-call load at Am- at, uh, at Gremlin is like pretty low. We have very few outages. If, if any, you know, we, our latency errors are pretty reasonable. I think we've taken a lot of uh, our learnings over time and, and really built those into our systems as we've like, built them from the ground up. And so we've taken a lot of those lessons, but there's, I think, I think nothing bad ever happening is just one of those aspirational things, right? There's always the like five, nine, six, nines that, that starts to get into like elusive territory, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This has been a really cool conversation. I'm really happy to have you on the pod. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, Dan, I really enjoy this. I really appreciate you giving me the time. For sure. Um, If listeners wanted to uh, connect with you or, you know, maybe learn a little bit more about Gremlin, I think you might have some hiring going on, you know, where could they go or what can they do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually pretty limited on uh, the social media. I've really only got a Twitter and uh, I don't post very often. So y'all are more than welcome to shoot me an email at maticgremlin.com. Um, or Forney at gremlin.com, whatever works for you. But uh, we are hiring at Gremlin. We're going to be hiring for, you know, the foreseeable future. And uh, you can go to gremlin.com slash careers to check out open positions. But there's not something on there that matches exactly what you're looking for. Feel free to shoot us an email anyway. We're always looking for good folks to join the company. Okay, great. So definitely be sure to check out the open roles on the Gremlin career page. Also be sure to join the Dev Interrupted Discord community. This is where we keep the conversation going all week long. You can find all of this information in the description. Thanks, everyone. Have an awesome weekend and uh, have a good uh, weekend to you, Matt.